This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. Coming in, it was starting to toss me around pretty bad, but you know, like I said, I had this drip in sight and didn't really know at that point if the storm was going to get worse or better or exactly what was going to happen. So my mind just went to, hey, I need to, I need to get this thing on the ground. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is John Humbert. John grew up on a farm in Tennessee. He and his mother used to watch crop dusters as they serviced his farm, and that gave John the inspiration to fly. He started with remote control airplanes, taught himself to fly in ultralights, and then in 2015, he earned his pilot's license. He built a Zenith 701 over a two-year period, and he flies that Zenith 701 off a 325-foot-long strip on his farm in Tennessee. John's logged over 560 hours in his two and a half years of flying that Zenith 701. John, thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Looking forward to this. John, I recently visited Tennessee. I'd heard so much about the Stoll Bandits and the group of a dozen or so pilots there in Tennessee and North Georgia. You guys are all over Facebook and having a ton of fun flying some backcountry strips in a place where people don't generally associate with backcountry. And uh, you and I did some flying together, and you shared with me a story where you got in a little bit of trouble in your uh, zenith with some winds trying to outrun a storm coming through. Do you mind sharing that story with us? Yeah, that's for sure. It, I was actually in late evening. The clouds looked really neat, and I was I was really just planning on a sunset flight. Checked the weather, and it was winds at four knots and scattered showers, which which I fly around that all the time. I mean, that's typical Tennessee weather. Had my radar up on my and stuff there when I took off and it showed the little shower there just just north of the town that's you know 10 miles out from us I flew around for 20 minutes and saw some of the rains in the distance which like I say that's that's really pretty common for our area we fly around you know if you don't fly around the showers in Tennessee in the spring and early summer months you don't fly at you're all you're not gonna it's be just, flying it's much. just part of the <laughs> yeah. you're right that's for sure yeah so just took off and flying around the, the clouds and enjoying that and it essentially blew up on me. It turned into a thunderstorm and we had some of the the drafts coming from the rains that got pretty, pretty violent. So did you, you saw it in the distance and was it kind of a race? You thought, okay, these things are moving in 
and you were going back to your, your home strip, your farm, or were you going somewhere else? Actually, when it started to get bad, I was within a mile of my little strip. So I was just kind of playing around the farm still when it first started, the wind started picking up. Okay. Pr- pretty much my runway was in sight. So like I say, with, within a mile. I got you. And so then you decided, hey, man, these winds are picking up. This is getting a little stronger than I anticipated. So let me put this thing on the deck, right? Yep. That's that's exactly what happened. So when they, when it started tossing me around, I said, you know, that's enough. I better call it before this whatever this storm is going to do actually does and just kind of straight toward the my little strip and it got you know right there in just that 30 second mile it was it got pretty intense well i know you have a video on this and we'll share this on our website so our viewers can go look at the video of the flight so uh tell us what happened so i was well like i say a mile out and the wind started getting really really violent it was tossing me around i, I had my cell phone there I keep it between my legs where I can reach down and grab it for text and check, you know, for flight and that kind of stuff. So it got violent enough that my my phone actually floated out of my lap and over into the passenger seat there at one point. Um, in the video, if you look close enough, you can see the stuff in the baggage compartment, kind of like the wires for the headsets and all that kind of stuff. You can see it kind of floating back there, too. And how high were you, John? What was your altitude here? My altitude, I was probably not much more than 300 feet off the ground at that point. Um, playing on the farm, you know, I was around our crops and stuff. When I'm on our own property, we will be really close to the ground. So when I was actually coming into my strip, I'm going to say around 300 feet. Okay, 300 feet. And you're in a light sport airplane. So that Zenith 701 is pretty light, right? What's the What's the gross weight on that thing? Yes, it's, it's well, the Zenith 701s are factory spec at around 600 pounds. Mine's a little heavy at 700, but still still really light for a light sport yeah. uh, stole plane. And, and let's talk a little bit about that Zenith 701. Tell us about that airplane a little bit. Re- I've, I've flown with you and seen that thing perform. Really capable airplane. Why did you choose that? And tell us a little bit about the performance of it. Yeah, so I love the the Zenith 701. Uh, I looked at a few different ones, and what really really caught my eye with the Zenith, uh, it's it's an all metal, all aluminum airplane. Construction's relatively, you know, anyone that's somewhat experienced or even not inexperienced, really, with metal can put one of these things together. Uh, it takes some time, but works really well. The performance is okay. So the Zenith 701 has the full leading slats and the flapper on controls, so the controls are really good for slow flight. VNE of a 701 is 110 miles per hour. And I've got a 130 horse UL power engine in mine. So it's a little bit overpowered, but it's it's really happy anywhere from say 45 miles per hour all the way up to the VNE. It's just happy anywhere in that range. Cool. And so you said it's got an empty weight, I think you said is uh, 700. What's the max gross weight that you can carry? The factory gross weight on the 701 is 1,100 pounds. I refigured the G's, and since I built mine a little bit heavy, uh, with the paperwork and everything, I went ahead and grossed mine at 1250 and did quite a bit of my phase one testing there at, at my new gross, so so I know it handles it, and I have the G ratings and all that stuff for it. Got it. Okay. So there you are, somewhere around 1,000 pounds or so, probably just you yourself flying it with some gas. You're 300 feet and a mile from the strip. I mean, really close, but all of a sudden the winds really pick up, and People don't realize uh, a lot of mistakes people will make flying a light sport is they'll come from a heavier airplane 
and think to themselves, oh, I'm just flying a light sport, this ought to be easy. And it's not. Uh, statistically, most light sports are uh, dinged up by pilots coming from heavier airplanes that underestimate the challenge of flying a light sport, especially in tricky winds like you're flying. And they tend to be pretty pitch sensitive. Uh, you tend to have to be really active on the controls with you know both your ailerons and your rudders to, uh, to work through winds like you're working with. So was that, in fact, kind of what you were dealing with there? Yeah, that's that's for sure. I mean, you you, you nail it right on the head there. Coming from heavier airplanes to these is, is definitely a lot different. Of course, with these leading edge slats and everything, and this this airplane being made made to where it can fly so slow, one benefit I had was I could pull the throttle back and slow down. And it, even though it was, you know, it would have really hammered had it been a larger airplane with the wingspan and a similar weight. But with this small airplane, I can throttle back and it kind of floats around like a leaf, but it was a violent leaf that day. <laughs> yeah, it was. So talk us, talk us all the way through the landing as you were being sort of pitched around there. Well, my strip is 325 feet and it's one way. There are trees around it. So it's, it's a, my strip is one of those strips that you have to hit it right or you're going to, you're going to destroy an airplane. So coming in, it was starting to toss me around pretty bad, but you know, like I said, I had the strip in sight and didn't really know at that point if the storm was going to get worse or better or exactly what was going to happen. So my mind just went to, Hey, I need to, I need to get this thing on the ground. Being tossed around with the winds and stuff that really, and you're right. I had to work the controls a lot. You'll see that in the video. I was, I was really having to struggle somewhat with the controls straight toward my, my runway. I ran into some rain and of course the winds just kept being turbulent and violent. When you run into rain with a slow stole airplane, it's always better if it's bigger droplets and you have a little bit of speed so it'll sh you know shed off the windshield and i was going slow and the rain wasn't real heavy so it was kind of staying on the windshield so that just added to the complexity of the whole thing because i was having to kind of look over the around the bubble doors and that and see out the side to see exactly what i was trying to aim for so gusty winds and poor visibility due to the rain you just described going into a one-way strip that's 325 feet long. What's so hard about that? Right, I know, right? <laughs> it's, it, <laughs> you know, the, and people say people say you're, you're crazy for doing that strip a lot. The thing about my strip is it's very intimidating to pretty much anyone who flies over it and sees it from above. Once you see it on the ground, you see there's a little bit of an uphill grade. And, if, you know, if you get confident enough to try it and you actually put it in there a time or two in an airplane that's capable of making that it's really not so bad it actually really turns into a fun fun backcountry strip yeah and let's talk a little bit about the performance of your zenith 701 i mean I, I got to see some of that myself it looked like your takeoff roll is less than 100 feet most of the time yeah so well like i said the strip's 325 feet and it is very very rare that i ever use more than half of it i actually have a have a marker there 200 feet from the, the stop point where the first trees begin. So I'll hit that marker and less than 200 feet is what I normally aim for, unless I come in heavy or extra fuel or a passenger or something with me. Mm -hmm. uh, performance on the plane though. Yeah. It's, it's almost always less than hundred feet takeoff and then less than 150 feet landing. Yeah. So while for most of us, 325 feet is short, you know, that would be, um, you know, you, you basically have, more than double the space you need for takeoff, almost really triple the space. And then for landing, you've got about double the room that you would, you know, typically need. And that's on a normal landing, right? That's not a max performance landing. That's just your typical landing. 
Right, right. Yeah, it's just typical landing. You know, we we just got back from Oshkosh, so the my shortest takeoff there was 48 feet. I don't remember what my shortest landing was, but it, it was less than 100 feet on the shortest landing there there I did at the stall demo at Oshkosh. So it, it's capable of doing a lot shorter if you're lightweight, one up, and and really trying to do the performance. Yeah. So as you uh, wrestled it down towards final, anything anything kind of get squirrely on you there in the latter stages of take us all the way through the landing and the rollout? For sure, squirrely. Um, it was a, a quartering tailwind, so I, it was trying to push the the rear end around on me as I was coming in, really having to stay you know on top of the rudder and make sure it was was headed the right direction and uh, hit hit the runway right because it's I've. I have tall grass on both sides it'll if you get a main wheel off in it, it it'll it'll pretty much ground loopy i mean it's one of those things you have to hit um my runway's 30 feet wide so it's it's pretty narrow too but anyway yeah it, it squirrely uh the gusting tailwinds and they were getting pretty extreme there right as i touched down and as i started taxing but touchdown was really really non-event i, I was watching out the the bubble door could see you know visibility was terrible through the windshield but when I'm doing the the extreme stole stuff, I'm always looking out the bubble door to to see my marker anyway. So that's essentially what I did on this this storm landing was I was looking out the door to to see my touchdown point and hit pretty close to it even in the storm. And and of course the tailwind was pushing me hard, so it floated me right into the area where I have to slow down and do the taxiing. Yeah, you know that's a concept that people that don't fly backcountry may not be familiar with, but you oftentimes do, whether it's backcountry out in Idaho and Montana or Tennessee or Bentonville, Arkansas with the Fly Oz group, you do go into some strips that are one way. And so you have to be willing to accept a little bit of a tailwind either on landing or takeoff. And it's okay up to a certain point, And it's really on you as the pilot to know what your airplane can tolerate and what you can tolerate based on your skill set that day. The only option, of course, is a lot of times, you know, you will go to a strip, the tailwind will be more than you want to deal with, and you decide, I just can't land at this strip this day. So was that something you were factoring in? So your decisions were either to put it on the ground here, accept that tailwind, and the gusty conditions you were dealing with, or just go somewhere else altogether. Talk us through that decision process. Yeah, and that, you know, I guess that decision process was somewhat sketchy there's a get there out of us you hear pilots say um like i said i didn't know if the storm was going to get worse or better at that point i knew it was getting gusty i knew i had a tailwind i guess the get there out of us was i had my runway right there in sight i was familiar with my runway i knew sort of what it took to get into it so at the time i thought that was my best option we have some other fields and stuff but of course you know, I could have landed in the crop field because we have some crop fields that weren't totally grown up and, and whatever, but mm-hmm. I'm not as familiar with them. And I didn't know, you know, once I got on the ground, my thought was if I get this thing on the ground and it gets worse, I'm not going to be able to tie it down fast enough to be able to avoid it. Or it may tear it up in the, in the crop field just as easily because there's not really any kind of a tree barrier or anything like that in the crop fields. So I, I guess my thought process at that point really was, let's see if we can get this thing on the ground and get down in the trees, maybe in my taxiway and it'll block some of the wind and maybe I can save this airplane. And is that in fact what you found once you got below those trees, did it protect it from the wind or was it pretty difficult even on the ground to taxi and to tie down and so forth? 
you know, it, it was still, and I've told people that the worst part of the, the entire experience was actually the taxing. Um, mm-hmm. My strip is uphill and, and the taxiway has trees on both sides of it. So I'm not entirely sure with the tailwind, it may have kind of funneled the wind instead of blocking it the, the direction it was coming. I really had to fight the wind harder on, on the taxiing than, than in the actual landing. You know, as, as I was taxiing up, it was trying to push the tail around. So I was probably more worried about it tearing up the airplane there at my first early stages of taxiing than, than any of the rest of it. Yeah, interesting you say that because one of my observations a couple years ago when I bought my Super Cub and flew it back from uh, New Mexico, I came up through Colorado and Wyoming, some pretty flat country where the winds get pretty stiff. And what I learned on that trip was I can actually land that Super Cub in much stronger winds than I can taxi or tie it down in. Because, you know, you can land into the wind, you can use taxiways if you need to, or, you know, you, you have all kinds of options for landing and you got some speed and some power at your advantage. Once you get down on the ground, when the wind starts pushing your tail around or getting up underneath the wind, you, you know, you end up taxiing up to a fuel ramp. And I remember doing this. I'm taxiing up to the fuel fuel ramp. The winds are just howling. And I'm thinking, how am I going to get out of this thing and fuel it? Because I can't afford to leave the airplane. You know, my, my use on the controls even stopped or keeping it on the ground. And fortunately, there's people in the FBO that will usually come out and help you and grab a wing strut or something to hold the airplane down. But that was an unanticipated uh, problem for me. For sure. Yep. I, I can totally see that. And maybe possibly even more so in, in the tail dragger style planes with a tri-gear of the Zenith. You know, it, it was definitely still an issue that day, but weight and balance on these things has really similar weights on all three tires. So you do have that front tire kind of planted and that, that helps a lot. But, mm. you know, that day it was it was sketchy for sure. Hey, listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. It's just a just one of those things you have to learn, I think, by experiencing it. And uh, it's just something I didn't anticipate. And after talking to people that have a lot of time in Super Cubs and light airplanes and explaining that to them, they're like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, (laughs) there are some winds that you just (laughs) simply can't taxi in, you know. That's for sure. In these light airplanes, like my Super Cub, uh, I want to say empty weight, it's around 1,000 pounds, maybe 1,080, something like that. So, you know, your airplane being around 700 pounds empty weight, it's, you know, these winds on the ground are uh, definitely a factor. Definitely a factor. And, and you know, I'm, the tailwind may have actually somewhat been to my benefit there. I, I looked at the weather after I got on the ground, I looked at the, the historical weather and it was gusting up to 38 miles per hour there somewhere about the time that I was trying to put it in. So, it, you know, this, this plane will fly at 38 easily. So if, had that been a headwind, I'm not sure... Yeah. It would have, the outcome would have been the same either. Yeah. Well, as you think back on that, it's just interesting that you got caught so quickly. I mean, you're just kind of flying around your farm, having fun. Suddenly the winds pick up, and as soon as you feel them pick up, you decide to, you know, this is it. You go for the strip, and already that was too late, and you were only a mile or so away from your strip 
What are the lessons learned that you take away from this? You know, people people ask me that, and they ask me what I would have done differently. And of course, you know, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. It's it's easy to to see what happened on my video, and and knowing what I know now, my my best move would have been to just keep flying because less than ten minutes later, the winds were back down to three miles per hour here, or three knots here locally. So. I, my, for sure, my best avenue in this particular storm would have been to keep flying, just you know, slow down and fly through the gust, and then I could have had an awesome, perfect light wind landing. Not knowing that though, like I said, I watching that and it blew up. So I was flying along, and within 30 seconds, it went from being a three, four knot wind that was really easily in straight line wind to something that was really harsh and you know, turbulent and all that kind of stuff. So it, Within 30 seconds to a minute, it was an extreme change. And not knowing what was going to get better or worse or whatnot, you know, if it happened again, I'm not entirely sure that I wouldn't do the exact same thing. I I have my strip. I know my strip. I know what my plane's capable of. And, that you know, that just really seemed like the the best option for me at the time. Yeah, you make a good point, though, in that the difference between a system rolling through like a front and a localized thunderstorm, which happens in the southeast certainly all the time, all summer long, right? They'll pop up, they stay for a bit, and then they move on. That's an option, isn't it, to realize this is just a localized storm. It's going to pass, and a lot of times they'll pass quickly. And if you have the fuel and you don't want to divert, you can just orbit and wait till it passes and see if you, know, see if you have the option to go in there. For sure, yeah. And like I say, we fly around these these thunderstorms all the time uh here in, here in the southeast there we have pop-up thunderstorms this time of year we have them somewhere within 50 miles of here pretty much daily so it we fly around them all the time but what what i really didn't expect and what was highly unusual for this one was i guess you call it the micro burst it mm-hmm. made the you know it just made it it made it fairly extreme very quickly yeah being on the being on the edges of that storm when it suddenly releases and the power of the wind coming down from the storm in that microburst, yeah, you're right, even just waiting that part of it out can make a difference, and it sounds like you kind of got caught right in the in the front side of that microburst, yeah, I got caught right in right in the prime of it had I been two or three miles from my strip, it would have been a lot different too because I probably would have flown enough time to be able to to get through the worst of it, so i you know I guess. The way it all came out, it was just set up for a perfect storm, so to say. The timing with me being the perfect distance from my strip and the timing of that microburst made my landing just pretty much right in the worst possible time. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would add as a lesson learned is your skill in maneuvering your airplane, which um, is evident when you take a look at your video. I've learned this lesson over and over again. You, you just have to recall on your skills sometimes when you're not really expecting it. You think you're going out for just a casual flight, and then suddenly something happens, an aircraft problem or weather pops up, and the next thing you know, you are flying at the absolute limit of your skill, and you're so thankful that you put all that work into developing that skill so it's there when you need to call on it. That that is for sure. Um, with my five hundred and sixty some odd hours in this zenith, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of a regular on YouTube now, and I post post a lot of my low flying adventures. We fly around, you know, uh, bluff strips here local, and I did the Arkansas where it was like a stole cross. A lot of that is the low level, and it's it takes 
it takes some pilot skill and, and really a lot of pilot learning at low level and, and getting a feel for what the airplane is really capable of. And of course, a lot of that I did up at altitude, not just slow flight, but the slow flight with some pretty extreme turns. You find out where the stalls are and what breaks and, you know, which, which wing breaks off and how to handle the rudder and all that kind of stuff. So all that really, really plays into being able to, to handle a situation like that. It does. And I think if you're going to do this kind of backcountry flying or flying where there's not a lot of infrastructure to support you, then you really have to know how to max perform your airplane. And especially in those slow flight conditions, what I like to do is I'll take my Super Cub up just in preparation when I'm headed into the backcountry and I'll stall it in every kind of configuration, you know, clean, partial flaps, full flaps, and I'll go in, in a turn and I'll go in and out of the stall. And you ought to be able to, in a coordinated turn, go in and out of a stall pretty quickly without losing much altitude at all because you have such a feel for being right on the ragged edge and moving in and out. And that becomes so important because if you're going to go into these one-way strips that are somewhat limited and you know they're not very long, then you've got to have confidence that you can put that airplane exactly where you want it. That is for sure. You, you, you hit that right on. That's and you really have to, if you want to do this, this type of flying in the backcountry, like you said, you really have to practice those maneuvers. And, and you, of course, you need to do it at altitude, but yeah, the stalls, in and out of, of the coordinated turn stalls. And the big thing is not just a plain stall. If, you know, if you're doing just a power on, power off stall and the, the conditions are perfect and you're doing straight, that's probably most likely not going to be the type of stall you're going to encounter when you're going into these backcountry strips where the wind may be gusting or mm-hmm. you're having to come around a corner low and slow. Yeah, I agree with you. The, the straight-on stalls that we learn in flight training aren't enough. You've, you've got to go more than that. So, interesting situation that you shared with us there, uh, John. Glad it turned out well and you didn't uh, hurt yourself or bang up that beautiful zenith you built there. So, thanks for sharing <laughs> your story with us. Well, I appreciate it. It was, it was a learning experience for me, too. Um, and something I can look back on and say, you know, if nothing else for the experience of it, I can put that in my toolbox now. Yeah. So before you go, tell us a little bit about this Stoll Bandit group. You guys are a ton of fun. I love following you on Facebook. Well, I appreciate it. Stoll Bandits is a group that kind of originated there around 2018, 2019. Not too long after I built the plane, one of the bandits, we weren't even the bandits at the time, but one of the, one of the local guys found out that I built a plane and had a short strip and actually came and landed on the strip and visited me the first time I'd ever met him. Um, and then I met another one over at the AOPA Invitational Stole Fly-In at Tullahoma. So the three of us kind of started a, a group text and, you know, one pilot knows another and we grew the group and all of a sudden we have 12 pilots that just, we absolutely have a blast. We have more fun than what should probably be allowed. Um, Tell us about people. I don't think people know about the sort of backcountry environment there in Tennessee and North Georgia. So tell us about like, how many strips do you have? Are they actual strips? Are you landing in pastures or give us a feel for the flying there? <laughs> so our group, you know, we really have all sorts of landing strips with a dozen of us. You know, I may know a couple of strips that the rest of the group don't. And then another person may know five or six more in another one. So all of a sudden we have, you know, I'm going to say we probably have a hundred strips that we can hit right here within 30 minutes of, of my, my home strip. And they vary everywhere from we'll do barnstorming and someone waves at us out in the pasture, we'll land in a cow pasture. We 
have a couple of restaurant strips where farmers own the property close by that will actually land in the farmer's property and step across the fence and go eat lunch or breakfast or whatever. And we also have, you know, we, we've got the rock bars along the river and the sand bars, and we have the uh, bluff strips around Lookout Mountain, and some of the mountains here close have some really cool bluff strips. And then, of course, there are lots of other chartered strips right here local. So we can, you know, we can take off and fly all kinds of grass strips that are actually on the charts, too. So what if somebody wanted to come fly along with you, uh, Stole Bandits? How do they get in touch with you? So look us up on Facebook is probably the easiest way. We have a, a Stole Bandits group. At our group, join. We Lots of times we'll kind of leave post or something like that, kind of telling what we are, what we're doing, or, you know, you, you can leave a post on the group to reach out. The other way, you can contact me directly. I also have a Super 701 page on Facebook, and you can shoot me direct messages to that. So I'm, I try to keep up with that and answer those as quickly as I can. Great. And, and you have a YouTube channel, don't you, John? Yes, Super 701. So it's youtube.com slash Super 701. And I, I, if you look that up, you'll see some of the Stole Bandits flying around and playing and all the same type of stuff. And, and then even... Some of the events I've been to, like the Sun and Phone in Oshkosh and the AOPA flyings and that kind of stuff. So I have the, I have the 360 camera out there, and I, I try to post some 360 content where you can see the plane and sometimes formation planes, you know, with the other bandits flying around with me. And anyway, check it out. We have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, Super 701 on YouTube. There's some really fun videos on that site. So John, thanks so much for sharing your story with us today. Well, thank you again. It was it was a lot of fun to have you out here flying with us, and I hope we can get you back out, and we'll we'll take you some more of our, our cool grass strips right here in the southeast. Uh, you can count on it. I'll be back. Well, that's a good story from some lessons learned that come from flying a light sport in gusty and windy conditions and suddenly being caught off guard. Only a mile from his strip gets caught on the front side of a microburst, and it causes some challenge. So take a look at the video that's on our site and you can see just how much he was struggling with that landing. Some very good lessons learned that came out of that. We're appreciative of John sharing his story with us and I look forward to flying with him and the Stole Bandits later this year. Thanks for joining us. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. Hey listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.